0: Welcome to Whole and Holy, the Bethel Seminary podcast. I'm Dr. Peter Vogt. I'm the Dean of Bethel Seminary, and I'm the host of this podcast. My guest today is Leith Anderson. Leith is Pastor Emeritus of Wooddale Church in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, where he pastored for 35 years. He also served as President of the National Association of Evangelicals for 13 years, and he's currently President Emeritus of that organization. In 2019, he was named the Founder's Chair of World Vision International. Ian and his wife, Charlene, are the parents of four children. Lee, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast today. Peter, it's a delight to be with you and with your friends. <laughs> thank you. You know, before we jump into the questions, I, I guess I have to ask, what is the what is the founder's chair of World Vision International? What does that mean? Okay, that's going to take the first 20 minutes of our time together. <laughs> uh, World Vision International is
1: very large, 100 countries, 40,000 employees. And the International Board has one particular seat that uh, historically has been determined by the United States in this broad partnership. And it has many roles, but
0: particularly um, the Christian focus of World Vision. Okay, great. Well, blessings to you in that that work. Um, Leith, I wanted to have this conversation with you just because of your experience both as pastor and as uh, president of the National Association of Evangelicals. I think I'll have to refer to it as NAE. It's easier than uh, spitting out (laughs) that whole whole thing every time. But, uh, you know, we live in a time of great division, and many would say it's unprecedented. There have been times of division in the past, but uh, as you think over your 35 years of, of pastoral ministry, what were some of the most divisive times that, that you led through and what were some of the most important takeaways from those experiences?
1: Yeah, well, everybody thinks their time is unique. And the reality is that if we go back through history, we discover that there were crises and dilemmas that we're grateful that we did not have to go through. But the reality is we live in the midst of our own circumstances. So actually let me go back. Um, you just triggered a memory. Um, I was a pastor for, the number of years in Colorado and uh, I was 24 years old. I just graduated from seminary and on a Saturday night in our community, there was a meeting of the John Birch society mm-hmm. and a number of people from the church <clears throat> attended that meeting. They were so excited about the speaker that they invited him to speak on Sunday morning to the entire congregation. I knew nothing of this <laughs> and they called all of the Sunday school teachers You know, it was a church of less than 200 people and told them their classes would not be meeting. They'd just be gathering together to hear this speaker. And I found out about it. I forget. I think it was really late Saturday night. Okay, so what do you do in a situation like that? Talk about bringing politics into church. I wasn't part of it. I was young. I was inexperienced. So you want me to tell you what happened or should we just move on to something else?
0: Oh, you got to tell us what happened.
1: (laughs) Amazingly, someone who later became uh, a renowned professor at uh, Bethel College was Les Aerosmith. He was the economics professor. But at the time, he had just left the Air Force as a colonel. He was a student, a PhD student at the University of Colorado. And I called him and he was an Air Force colonel. He took charge. <laughs> he had them call every Sunday school teacher. He told them this was not going to happen. He was the chairman of the Christian Education Committee, and a hero came to my rescue, which makes a great point that in the midst of some of these crises, you need someone else that is there with you that may have uh, a command and control that exceeds your own. And, you know, um, I think of others like 9-11. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was a unifying crisis instead of a divisive crisis, so I changed what I was preaching on that weekend. Uh, It was a challenging time, but it turned out to be a good unifying thing. Uh, What else? The HIV epidemic. uh, In the early stages of it, the rumors were just chaotic. In that case, I called a meeting of the entire congregation we met on Sunday nights. And people passing out literature in the church, and I said it just had to stop and stepped up. There was a child, a relatively newborn baby, that people said couldn't be in the nursery because the child was HIV positive. Mm. And in that case, I decided if that was the only child in the nursery, that child would be welcome. Mm. And, you know, I'm sure that really upsets some people. You try, kind of don't want these crises very often there's some things you don't want to be good at. And managing crises is sort of one of them because you don't want too many crises. Sure. So oh, what was the other part of that? What was the takeaway? Yeah. The, I mean, the takeaway the, is the same for a lot of these things. You know, it's uh, love the people, uh, teach the Bible and know the issues. So your knowledge of what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that gets to the, you know, the idea we're a few weeks away as we record this from the presidential election and the polls tell us that we're as divided as ever politically. Uh, what was your approach to dealing with then political issues and things like that? When you know elections come up, every, every election is, we're told is the, the most important election of our lifetimes and, and people invest themselves so heavily in it. So what was your approach to dealing with political issues uh, in leading the church?
1: Well, Wooddale Church uh, was a large congregation, very diverse, and that included uh, political diversity. And I had some underlying principles that I wanted to uh, espouse. One was that the church be a safe place for everyone. And that included uh, lots of things, socioeconomically, but politically as well. I tried then, and would today, focus on Bible stories that are accepted because of their authority in the scripture, but also connect to the circumstances of the moment. So an example, whether then or now, would be among the disciples of Jesus and telling a sermon that Matthew was in the same group of 12 with Simon the Zealot. Mm -hmm. So Matthew was, you know, by their definition, a collaborator. He was collaborating with the Roman invaders who had occupied the land, and he's collecting tax money to support their control of the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. And then Simon the Zealot, I mean, you read about zealots. They're amazing people. They carry knives hidden in their clothes, so in case they were ever with a Roman, they could kill that Roman or kill a collaborator. So we're talking about people at the farthest ends of the political spectrum, and they came together in Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Christians are, and that's what the church is to be. Was that easy for them? I can't imagine that was easy for them. Did they immediately trust one another? Probably not. So they had to center everything that they were doing around their trust in Jesus Christ. So, you know, that's the message for today. Let me, Peter, add one other piece. And these kind of permeate all of this topic. But that is that we need to be pastoral and not political. Mm. And I think right now we are in a country that is just stretched. People are just stressed about all kinds of things. It's not just politics, it's the pandemic, it's their loss of employment, it's concerns about family. All of these issues are there and people are depressed and it's just spinning out all over the place. And they turn to their faith, they turn to their church and they turn to their pastor. And we need to minister to them pastorally. So top of the list is not the politics, it's how to serve people as their shepherd to get them through the challenges that they're facing.
0: Mm. That's great. Yeah. I've, I've used that example of, uh, Matthew and Simon. I've talked about, you know, what, what staff meetings must've been like with with the disciples gathered together with such differences and, and that sort of thing. It's, it's hard to fathom, but that's, uh, that's such a really important, important thing. Are there particular things, um, Activities or programming things. You've talked kind of about you know being the pastor and being pastoral, not political. Uh, particular activities that you would do to kind of foster that that unity besides obviously there's corporate worship where we're we're called to be Christians and and that's our focus is on Christ. But are there other things in the church that you would that you would do uh, to, to kind of foster that? Would you ever address things, you know, maybe a, a discussion group even talking about politics, but Doing it from the standpoint of saying, you know, setting aside differences and focusing on unity? Or, or were there thing, other things that you might have done to, to kind of try to foster unity?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how applicable these are to other times or other places. Uh, there were times when I did this, for example, when the United States invaded Iraq, and I couched it in terms of what the Bible had to say about that part of the world. And it says a great deal. Mm-hmm. And then use that as a setting to discuss the, the current uh, politics and invasion. I chose to do that on a Sunday evening, uh, not in a Sunday evening service, just set it aside a different time so that the Saturday night and Sunday morning services were primarily worship and not addressing these issues. And I must say, they were exceptionally well attended on Sunday nights, Mm. packed out, a lot of people came. And the goal was to be biblical and to give people a context in which, you know, they could do those things. Um, And yeah, there there would be other discussions, there'd be things available. I, I chose generally not to allow the church to be politicized. So for example, we would have outsiders that would bring voting guides. Hmm. And we just had a decision that we would not allow those, so that they were picked up when people brought them, and uh, they were not available to people. I remember one time when, uh, actually more than once, when during the services, people would come and they would put political flyers under the windshield wipers of cars. Yeah. So we organized a team that was ready to deal with that and then followed them around and took them off the cars because people didn't come to church expecting a political flyer on their cars. At one time, uh, someone got upset and said they were going to call the police, and our person said, fine, you can call the police. But the the irony over this was that they were promoting uh, a series of candidates, all of whom were in the building, all of whom were members of the church. Oh, my. From the highest state offices to local positions and state government, um, so the people in the church were engaged politically, but we weren't taking a policy or an endorsement on behalf of the congregation. Mm. And I think that distinction is really important. And one other piece of this, I, I chose as a pastor, uh, not to personally engage in external politics. So for example, once I was asked to pray at a national convention, I declined to do that, but I would participate in inaugurations. Mm. So um, one of our members was the governor of the state. So I did the prayers in each of his inaugurations as well as a presidential inauguration in in Washington. And, uh, but I saw those as government events rather than political events. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a subtlety that was mine and that others didn't grasp, but uh, that's the way I chose to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think can be a, a challenge sometimes is for, people to have a hard time drawing a distinction between sort of their their politics and their theology so some people try to bring it in and so did you take a stand for example some people don't want flags in the in a worship center uh, because that's a kind of a political it's seen as a a political thing did you um, did you have that in the in your sanctuaries or worship centers or was that something you drew a line on
1: Well, you reached back and just touched a nerve. Um, Yeah, in 1984, the church relocated, so we moved uh, nine miles in three towns. The church had always had flags, and I chose to leave the flags behind in the old building with the theological understanding that the Church of Jesus Christ is universal, and if people from another country come, they should sense their solidarity in Christian faith rather than in a particular country. So, for a while, we for a short while, a few weeks or months, we didn't have any flags. That was really distressful, particularly mm-hmm. to an older generation. And finally, I agreed to do it, and the flags stayed there after. Mm-hmm. And you know, the the lesson there is you, you've got to decide. Which are the most important issues, and that was not an issue worth dividing over.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that is the challenge. I think is when you do have those different perspectives, the generational divide; those can be really tough to, to navigate. Um, Letha, as you think about how we're you know doing during, sorry, doing church today in the midst of a pandemic. Some in person, some watching online, that sort of thing. And and I know that you're not currently a pastor of of Wooddale, but you're certainly observing how things are done, and and I'm sure advising and and that sort of thing. Are there? Does that change how you seek to avoid division? Do you think that creates a a, a greater obstacle to to forming unity when we may not be physically present in the same? Um, in the same space uh, we're doing things online does that uh, does that make a difference do you think in terms of trying to foster unity and and what might we do to if if it makes a difference how would we try to do that in the midst of these challenges
1: I have a lot of conversations with pastors across the country um, in from different races and geographies and size of churches and it is the proverbial two-edged sword Because there are people within churches that are actually divided over this, that think that everyone should come together and others that say until the pandemic has passed, no one should come together. So I think we need to acknowledge that. And I think that we need to understand the context in which we minister. So what you're able to do in one community, you're not able to do in another. And as a pastor, you don't own the church. It's not just your opinion. It's the opinion of the people in the church. However, it's also an astonishing opportunity. I think almost every pastor I talk to, uh, I I talked to a pastor recently in a a church of 50 people in metropolitan New York, and how their congregation has grown nationally Mm. through online sermons. That would have been absolutely unimaginable a year ago. So it's recognizing the reality of divisiveness and recognizing the opportunity and communicating to the congregation that there are both of these things that are present, and then how do we leverage this for the glory of God and for the blessing of the people and the growth of the church?
0: Mm. Yeah, I just heard about a church recently that uh, typically has about uh, three thousand people on a on a weekend uh, in their pre pre COVID. Uh, attendance, and their downloads are over twelve thousand uh, and in the midst of in the midst of all this so it's it 's just astonishing how that how that works and maybe an opportunity there that we uh, need to take advantage of as we move forward uh, Lethin, your your work as the National Association of evangelicals the n a e that is of course, you know, uniting evangelicals, uh, their commitment to Scripture, and and that sort of thing, but it, that group does take stands on you know Supreme Court cases and and things like that. How did you avoid bringing that what might be seen as a, a political stance into uh, into the church? Because you were wearing, well, I guess maybe you were, well, at one time you were president, you were president of the NAE and pastor at the same time, for, for much of the time at least, I think, right? So how did you... Yeah,
1: there was an overlap.
0: Yeah, did you see yourself as wearing two different hats? Did your congregation see that that way as uh, that, or did, was, there, was that challenging to, to do that? Was NAE seen as political, and therefore people could know you politically in their minds from your work with NAE? Yeah,
1: the short answer to that is I tried to keep them separate. So I may have met during the week with leaders of the government or other governments around the world in my NAE role. I didn't say anything about it when I came back on the weekend. Mm. Actually, you could have attended Wooddale Church through those years, and unless you looked it up or somebody told you, you'd probably never know that I was doing any of these things. Mm. So writing books or speaking elsewhere or NAE. But, you know, with NAE, and we're talking about – uh You know, a lot of denominations, a lot of variety uh, across all kinds of American Christian faith, evangelical faith. Sometimes pastors say that being a pastor is like uh, herding cats. Hmm. Well, with NAE, it was more like herding squirrels. It it was (laughs) was actually uh, a grade above that. Hmm. And in terms of, you know, an approach, um, I sought to bring people together in common denominators, in graduate school, I took a course on conflict management, and one of the things I remember from that was in the midst of a crisis or even just a challenge, one of the responsibilities of a leader is to call the organization to its norms, mm. and that that is a helpful way of resolving conflict. So what are the norms? What are the principles? What are the standards of evangelicals? and constantly calling back to that. Mm -hmm. And if I can use a historical example, uh, during the Revolutionary War, there was a famous battle in uh, upstate New York, and obviously the British and their mercenaries were gonna win, except there was uh, one patriot who gave instructions to his uh, farmer friends with single shot muskets. And he told them the night before the battle, don't waste your shot on those who fight for six pence a day, aim your muskets at the epaulet men. Mm. What he was saying was there are so many mercenaries out there and we're so outnumbered, even if every single shot got one of the other soldiers, they're still gonna win. So find someone who's wearing an epaulette, that is an officer, and shoot them. And if you get the officers, you win the battle. Mm. It really changed warfare. And by the way, officers, I guess today, don't wear epaulettes because that story is too well known. And the lesson there is, if you get the leaders of the church or the leaders of evangelicalism, others will come along because they had their circles of influence. So why we want to relate to everybody We also need to distinguish who wears the epaulets in the church, who wears the epaulets in American Christian faith. And they then in turn can be enormously helpful in influencing others.
0: Mm. Yeah. I was a Naval officer. So that uh, story, I don't, I don't like that story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've I've heard of that though too. Um, Well, and that, that raises a question uh, as well. You know, evangelicals, are divided even on whether that term is a is a helpful one at at points. And you know, the some would see the the evangelical church too aligned with a particular political party and and that sort of thing. What is your what are your thoughts about how to how the evangelical movement, not necessarily the NAE as a, as an organization, but the evangelical movement in general um, should be Thinking about that, would it be the call back to first principles again, and and use that as the, the guide for for thinking about that and moving forward? Yeah, you know, we can't be beholden to any particular descriptor. Um,
1: before Christians were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. They were disciples of Jesus. So terminology can change, but faith in Jesus Christ is what is eternal. I think the evangelical label is going to go. A long way for a long time, you know. I sometimes I've actually done this uh, in Chicago, where I'll be with a group of people. and I'll say, "What's the tallest building in Chicago?" Mm-hmm. Every time I've done it, everywhere, including Chicago, they say the Sears Tower. Yeah, it hasn't been the Sears Tower for more than a decade. It's the Willis Tower. They changed the name, but just because you change the name doesn't mean that people change the name. <clears throat> they still use the old name. So, evangelical is a good word, but it's who we are as evangelicals that we take the Bible seriously. We believe in Jesus Christ as savior. So I think that's, uh, that's central to what we need to communicate.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's right. And, and those first principles are so, so important. Um, you mentioned nine eleven, and that was a, a time where, you know, everybody knew what the topic of, the sermon was going to be that following Sunday. I mean, since it, it was impossible to not address it. And, and so everybody knew what the, what the topic was going to be in every church in the United States, I think, there. And it seems to me that on November 8th, people of this year, people are going to gather for church either virtually or in person. And assuming we know the results of the election, there's going to be some portion of each congregation that's going to be elated. Some would be disappointed, if not crushed. So what would you recommend that pastors say on that, on that morning? Should they address the election results? How do, you, how do you envision, what would you recommend for our listeners as they're thinking about this and planning this just a few weeks away from the time we're recording this, that they're, they're going to say something? What would, you, what would you recommend? Yeah, that's
1: going to be a challenging date. Um, ironically, three, maybe four years ago. I accepted a preaching invitation to a large East Coast church for November 8th of 2020. (laughs) And uh, because they went virtual and because of a whole bunch of things, they decided to go by video instead. So I've already recorded it. But the idea of having an outside speaker who doesn't know the congregation speaking at that service on that Sunday, I'm not sure that's quite a fit, what they're going to actually end up doing is play my video and have someone from the staff also speak, which I think is a good choice. My advice has been actually to other pastors recently is uh, to prepare in advance advance and announce in advance. So somehow in print or on a website or verbally in a service or all of those, announce what your topic is going to be and what your text is going to be now. Mm. and mentioned it a couple times so that you communicate that you are there to teach the word of God and to serve the people, not just in reaction to results that may or may not be in following the November 3rd election. I think it'd be helpful to acknowledge the issues and acknowledge that there's division within the country. And then to say, how are we as Christians to act in this context? Um, You know, a really interesting story. I'm trying to remember the exact year. I think it was July of AD 64 that the fire burned Rome. And uh, Tacitus says that the persecution against Christians was formidable. I mean, they were crucifying people by the hundreds, all these horrible things that they did because Nero blamed the fire on Christians. Mm -hmm. And it was only about three years after that, approximately in 67, that Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.12, live live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God. Mm. And that should be the call in the midst of division, Mm -hmm. that we will be so faithful to God that even those who disagree with us and may be our enemies will see the good that we do Mm. and that that will draw them to Jesus Christ. So that's the challenge that I would like to see communicated by pastors on November 8th and in the surrounding weeks.
0: Mm. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Well, our time is almost up uh, here, Leith. Are there any resources that you would uh, recommend to pastors and ministry leaders as they seek to lead in the midst of division? Any works that you found especially helpful books or articles or blogs, anything like that, that uh, our listeners might want to check out?
1: Well, it may be helpful to look and see what some other churches have done and look at their sermons and videos. Uh, For example, uh, Hosanna Church in Lakeville, Minnesota, over the summer months, uh, Pastor Ryan Alexander did a four-week series on faith and politics. Mm. Uh, I've not seen all of it, so I don't know all that was done. But the point is that there are churches that have done this. So looking at those may be helpful. Uh, It's getting a little close in order to order books, uh, although you can get it on your Kindle. Um, You know, a couple of things to look at. Richard Mao's excellent book called Uncommon Decency. Um, The subtitle is Christian Civility in an Uncivil World. And calling for Christian civility, I think, is uh, a central theme to what we're about. Um, Galen Carey and I wrote a book, that was published by Zondervan just before the last general election in 2016. It's called Faith in the Voting Booth, and it addresses many of those issues. And I find that when I start looking at one resource, that often leads me to a secondary or tertiary resource that no one suggested that actually is better than the primary resource that was <laughs> recommended. So just getting online, that's a huge advantage that we can find resources pretty quickly and easily that are really helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I'll make sure we post those in the show notes so people can easily find those find those resources. That's that's really helpful. Any last thoughts you want to share with our, our listeners on on this topic? This has been so helpful. I've enjoyed it and, and learned a lot. Any any final final thoughts for our listeners? I assume
1: that those who listen to a podcast are those who are leaders and people of influence, and leadership is often formed and crafted and executed in the midst of circumstances that we could not predict or know. And this is what God has called us to. So this year, this generation, where we are, this is what God has called us to. And what we need to do is be faithful to our Lord in this context and circumstance. And it's for his glory. You know, I, I like defining the New Testament uh, doxa glory as reputation it's enhancing God's reputation, and that's what we want to do in every challenge we face, enhance the reputation of Jesus Christ.
0: Amen. That's, that's fantastic. Lee, thank you so much for, for being a part of this. It's been great to have you on the, on the podcast and for you sharing your perspective and wisdom with us. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, and may um, everybody listening be whole and holy.
0: Amen. Thank you so much for listening to Whole and Holy. If you have suggestions for future episodes or comments, please feel free to email us at whole and holy at bethel.edu. Again, that's whole and holy at bethel.edu. And if you get a chance to go to iTunes or Stitcher, we'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast and also. Give us a review there. The higher our reviews, the more easily people can find us. So if you're finding this beneficial, please subscribe and please uh, give us a a good review on uh, iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks so much for listening and God bless you.
1: Thank you for listening to Whole and Holy. This podcast is a production of Bethel Seminary in collaboration with Bethel University's Office of Church Relations. Please share your feedback with us including ideas you'd like to see in future episodes, by emailing us at wholeandholey Once again, that address is wholeandholey at bethel.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.